Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at pub quiz, wherever Wherever that might be. Wherever that is. Yep. And we are your hosts. (laughs) I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Sorry, Joel. See, I'm usually the one that derails the intro with my like existential thoughts. Yeah, I know. This is my fault. But you know what? It's it's a new season. New so season. We're switching it up. We're switching <laughs> up the we're switching up who's who. You know? Maybe th- maybe this season, Julia, you could be the dumb one. <laughs> <laughs> Just perfect. think about it. We That's don't have a to perfect decide excuse it for me. <laughs> my I my brain doesn't always work anymore thanks to all right. you a know toddler what? in my right. house yeah uh by the way everybody this is a psa for everybody <laughs> <laughs> did you know that adults can get hand foot and mouth disease because i didn't uh because the <laughs> gruenberg novakovic household is like plague house <laughs> Our darling daughter <laughs> happened to bring it home from daycare and we didn't know. And then uh, we all got it and she's fine. She's doing great. Oh, oh yeah. she bounced back she, within two days. She got, she the, didn't she get, got the lightest case. Yeah, she didn't get covered in anything. She wasn't super miserable. Like she was all good. But um, both Josh and I, we got it bad. I'm going to wow. spare, every, spare everybody the details. But uh Adults, you can get hand, foot, and mouth disease from little children, and it's it's pretty bad. <laughs> I had no, I mean, none of us had any idea, obviously. Yeah. Like, we had no idea. But, you know, I talk to people who are mothers or stepmothers, and they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, um, hey. You didn't, like, tell people. You like, didn't, didn't say, tell me. They didn't, I didn't get a heads up on this one, no okay? No one said anything. Yeah. And then I Googled it, of course. Oh, you shouldn't you told have Googled me. that. Yeah. And uh, and there are numerous articles that are like, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, you're going to get it. And you know what? It's going to be painful. It's going to be bad. It's going to be you're painful. You're going to hate this. Yeah. It's um, it is what it says as it is. Your your hands and your feet and your mouth uh, get covered in painful blisters and sores. And nobody has any fun. Hey, where's the vaccine for that? You know what I mean? Ooh. Uh, where's that? We- <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I'm not rushing to like <laughs> change yeah. the course of scientific like experimentation. Get out the streets, everybody, yeah, you know, I'll be marching for <laughs> foot and mouth HFM. disease. Yeah, oh, HFM boy. disease. Yeah. Yikes. So just anyway, PSA, everybody. If you're an adult, you can get this, and yeah, hopefully you only get it once, but that's more than enough. Yeah, plenty, plenty for a lifetime. Damn. Um. Uh. In no, there's no transition to this, but uh, we did get a message from one of our listeners whose name I I don't remember in the moment, but he was like, (laughs) great. (laughs) He was like, uh, Neil has been, uh, was awful quiet in your past (laughs) couple episodes. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Neil has to stay away because he, you know, because of my uh, infectious disease right now. Yeah. So he's, he's not on today's episode. But watch out but for keep an ear weeks. out. Keep an eye out. Keep you might hear a little out. you might hear a little or maybe a guffaw. <laughs> a little laugh. <laughs> Just know. You hear something like that? There's Neil. It's Neil's watching Neil. over Neil's us. Little- <laughs> 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 like our personal guardian angel. I love it. Trivia guardian angel. Yeah, we haven't Neil heard Fisher. anything else from the Triviality Boys about <laughs> 
no absolutely not about no wanting to defend um their boy's honor so i mean i think he's better off with us to be honest first of all like we'll feed him we will treat him kindly we will recognize his genius you know like yeah. we're we're an open welcoming loving i would say podcast yeah big that just Big fans of Neil F. Oh, yeah. We love our Neil F. So <laughs> we're trying. We're not saying his last name to protect his privacy. But, <laughs> but we love Neil. Oh, anyway. and Colleen, of course, by extension. But anyway. Uh, yeah, I guess our other transition is um, this week. The new James Bond movie came out. Oh, yes. No Time to Die. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the 25th Bond film in the series. Wow. Um, and I love spy movies and I love spy stories. Mm-hmm. And that's how I decided mm-hmm. that this is the topic I'm going to cover this week. So <gasps> we're yes. just jumping into it. This Great. episode is Spy vs. Spy vs. Spy. This is the story of three lady spies. <laughs> Lady spies. Lady this is spies. amazing. Oh, I'm so yes. excited. So we're going to cover um, three different incredible women who did various things uh, across uh, across several different time periods. So okay. you know we're gonna we're gonna cover the um, Civil War era and World War One era, and then we'll we'll jump into World War Two. So. Ooh. Lots of exciting stuff. Um, so yeah, when I was a kid, Harriet the Spy was actually one of my favorite books. Yes. And mm-hmm. in that, um, a couple of famous women spies are discussed at certain points. And I always wanted to know more about them. And mm-hmm. uh, when I was 11 years old, I didn't quite have the, you know, internet the, access, the gumption <laughs> in me to, to okay. do a research report on them then. So here I am now. Uh fulfilling my you know fifth grade it. dreams um anyway our first spy of the night rose o'neill greenhow she was born in 1813 as maria rosetta o'neill on a small plantation in montgomery county maryland she was the third of five daughters of john o'neill who was a planter and a slaveholder and his oh, wife boy. eliza henrietta hamilton uh, so they were actually orphaned as children. So Rose and her sister Ellen were invited to live with their aunt in Washington, D.C. around 1830. And their aunt, Maria Ann Hill, ran a stylish boarding house at the old Capitol building. And the girls met many important figures in the Washington area there. In the 1830s, Rose met Robert Greenhouse Jr., who was a prominent doctor and a lawyer from Virginia. And in 1835, they got married. Robert worked at the U.S. Department of State, and the two moved in important political circles and cultivated friendships with presidents, generals, senators, and lots of high-ranking military officers, including John C. Calhoun and James Buchanan. Mm. So their family ended up actually moving to Mexico City in 1850 and then actually to San Francisco. In 1852, Rose moved back east with the children, and her husband actually died in an accident in San Francisco in 1854. So she's a widow with her children living in D.C., traveling in circles with all kinds of uh, important figures. 
So mm-hmm. after losing him, Rose became more sympathetic to the Confederate cause. And Uh-oh. she was an advocate for secession and, quote, preserving the Southern way of life, including being a proponent of slavery. So she's not like, a, she's not the hero of the story. No. Just, <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Wait. We should mention. Yeah. We're she's, not saying no, she was on no, the no. right side of I'm history. Just telling, I'm just telling her story. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. she was, unfortunately, a proponent of slavery uh, because her parents were. So she mm. was strongly influenced by her friendship with Senator John C. Calhoun, who was from South Carolina, and her loyalty to the Confederacy was noted by those with similar sympathies in Washington. And she was recruited as a spy. <gasps> So her recruiter was U.S. Army Captain Thomas Jordan, who had set up a pro-Southern spy network in Washington, and he supplied her with a 26-symbol cipher for encoding messages. Oh, my. So during the Civil War, Greenhow wrote ciphered messages to the Confederates and provided information about Union military plans. Confederate President Jefferson Davis credited her with helping the South win the first Battle of Bull Run. Wow. We also call that Manassas if you're from the North. And on July 9th and July 16th of 1861, Greenhow passed secret messages to Confederate General PGT Beauregard, which contained critical information regarding Union military movements for what would become that battle, including the plans of General Irving McDowell. So a young woman working with Greenhow named Betty Duvall carried the message wrapped in a tiny black silk purse wound up in the bun of her hair. Oh, wow. And Greenhow right. became known as Rebel Rose for her work in the South. Mm. So head of U.S. Intelligence Service Alan Pinkerton, we've heard of his oh, name yeah. before, he observed mm-hmm. Rose as part of his counterintelligence activities, and he found sufficient evidence to place her under house arrest. Greenhow claimed she knew she was under surveillance, but had continued her spying activities. Pinkerton and his men searched her home and seized documents, including letters, maps, notes, ciphered messages, and burnt Mm. papers that Rose had tried to destroy in her stove. (gasps) So this was like the equivalent of like the end of Goodfellas where they're like flushing the cocaine down the toilet. Yeah, exactly. She's trying to burn letters in her stove. As fast as she could. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So these materials included numerous love letters from the abolitionist Republican U.S. Senator Henry Wilson from Massachusetts. Um, She considered him her prize source and said he (gasps) gave her data on the number of heavy guns and other artillery in the Washington defenses. And her seized papers are now held by the National Archives and some are available online. So I definitely recommend like if you're, you know, you're at home and you're looking and you're like, ooh, I'm interested in this story. You can go and you can read some of her papers online with Nara. It's kind of wild. Wow. So following a period when she was under house arrest, she was transferred to the old Capitol prison for nearly five months where she continued to send encoded messages and collect secret information. Oh my Um, God. So at the time, her eight-year-old daughter, Little Rose, stayed with her in the prison. And a photographer from Matthew Brady's studio photographed them together. So that's um, that's oh. like the prevailing like photographic image of her is like she's actually in prison, like not obviously not like in like prison stripes, like, you know, yeah, you exactly. kind of think. But she and her eight-year-old daughter are, are pictured together and they're actually been photographed in prison. So... So do you think that this was kind of like a propagandistic kind of image that was created to kind of be like, look, these evil union people are 
are like they're they're putting this poor beautiful woman and her darling child in prison. That's like that absolutely kind of a great point. Okay. Like yeah, if yeah. they were able to make like cabinet cards of this and pass them around and you know mm-hmm. be like, "Oh, well, all she was doing was writing letters to people. How is that bad?" Yeah, yeah exactly. I could absolutely see that being used. That's a really good point. Mm-hmm. So she had a hearing and she was released to Richmond, Virginia, which was the capital of the Confederacy in May 1862. Jefferson Davis enlisted her as a courier and sent her on a diplomatic mission Mm. to Europe in 1863. So many European aristocrats had sympathy for the South's elite. There were also strong commercial ties between Britain and the South. So they were kind of drumming up some um, support from from Europe to try to fight against the Union. Um, And while in France, Greenhall was received in the court of Napoleon III third at the Tuileries and in oh, Britain wow. she had an audience with Queen Victoria. Greenhow met and in 1864 became engaged to Granville Levison Gower, second oh, Earl of it. Granville. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and while in Europe uh, she published a memoir titled My Imprisonment and the First Year of Abolition Rule at Washington. Wow. So now she's making money off of her story which was from her spying and getting Union soldiers killed because she told the Confederates about their plans. Wow, this woman has some she ovaries. Has some, on she her. sure does. She sure wow. does. But here's the end of her story. <laughs> on August 19th, 1864, Greenhow left Europe to return to the Confederacy carrying dispatches from Europe. She traveled on the Condor, which was a British blockade runner. On October 1st, 1864, the Condor ran aground at the mouth of the Cape Fear River near near Wilmington, North Carolina, while being pursued by the Union gunboat, the USS Nephon. In fear and capture and re-imprisonment, Greenhow fled the grounded ship by rowboat. A wave capsized the rowboat and Greenhow drowned. The rumors say that she was weighed down by the $2,000 worth of gold that she had sewn into her underclothes and hung around her neck, which were returns from her memoir royalties. Wow. See, now, whether that's true or not, that is like some dramatic irony right right there. That's very good. Yes. Yeah. So, So in the end, she didn't end up living a long, happy life. Nope. Uh, And she maybe maybe face some consequences of her <laughs> espionage. Yeah, yeah, maybe she did. Some hmm. and the second female spy that I'm going to talk to. We have all heard of her, but maybe we don't all know her story. Okay. And especially if you uh, watch Eurovision 2020, mm. uh you've definitely heard the name Matahari. Oh yeah. Matahari. So, <laughs> so this is now our have that's Yes. <laughs> I'm going to have that song in my head for the next mm, month and a half. Yep. You're welcome. Because that's Eurovision. You're welcome. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so this is our World War One story. So Matahari. Margaretha Gertrude Zell was born in 1876 in the Netherlands, and she was affectionately called Magritte by her family. Her father owned a hat shop, made investments in the oil industry, and became rich enough to give Margaretha and her siblings a lavish early childhood that included exclusive schools until the age of 13, um, you know, everything they wanted. And soon after, her father actually went bankrupt, and her parents divorced, and her mother died when she was 15, so, you know, things started going downhill. 
So she and her three brothers were split up and sent to live with various relatives. Um, Magritte uh, studied to be a kindergarten teacher in Leiden, but when the headmaster began to flirt with her, she left. She was like, nope, you know what? I can see where this is going. I'm out of here. Because she was also like 15. Yeah, yeah. That's gross. So at age 18, the beautiful Margaretha answered an advertisement in a Dutch newspaper that was placed by Dutch colonial army captain Rudolf McLeod. Um, he was living in what was then the Dutch East Indies, now Indonesia, and he was looking for a wife. So this marriage enabled Zell to move to the Dutch upper class and it placed her finances on a sound footing. She moved with her husband, who was 21 years her senior, to Malang on the east side of the island of Java, traveling out on the SSS Princess Amalia in May 1897. They had two children, Children, Norman John McLeod and Louise Jean McLeod. So the marriage, I mean, as you might expect, it was mm. kind of terrible. Uh, sure. McLeod was an alcoholic. He regularly Yikes. beat her. Um, oh he also openly kept a concubine, um, which, well, you know, was a socially acceptable practice in the Dutch East Indies at the time. But sure, she but wasn't a fan of this. So yeah. she abandoned him temporarily, moving in actually with another Dutch officer. Hmm. Um, she studied Indonesian culture intensely for several months and joined a local dance company during that time. Oh. And in correspondence to her relatives in the Netherlands, she revealed that her artistic name there was Matahari, the word for sun in the local Malay language. Hmm. It literally translates to eye of the day. So at her husband's urging... Uh, she returned to him, but his behavior didn't change. Again, she escaped her circumstances by studying the local culture. And in 1899, their children fell violently ill from complications relating to the treatment of syphilis contracted from their parents. Mm. Yay, family mm -hmm. past illnesses. Uh, the, the family claimed that they were poisoned by a servant. So while their okay. daughter, Jean recovered their son Norman died which is really <gasps> sad oh that's awful so the family moved back to the Netherlands and the couple officially separated in 1902 uh, the divorce became final four years later and she and Zell uh, the Margareta was actually awarded custody of Jean McLeod was legally required to pay child support but he never did mm. and during a visit with his daughter McLeod decided just not to return her to her mother and since Zell did not have the resources to fight the situation and she just accepted it, believing that though McLeod had been an abusive husband, he'd always been a good father. So basically, oh, uh, her ex-husband kidnapped her daughter. Okay. That's uh, terrible. So she's, you know, so she got a little money out of that, but he's not he's not paying her the money he's supposed to. You know, she, she decides what's she going to do. So yeah. in 1903, she moves to Paris, where she performed as a circus horse rider using the name Lady McLeod, much to the disapproval of her former family. And I mean, struggling. <laughs> like, you got to do what you got to do, okay? Yeah. And struggling to earn a living, she also posed as an artist's model. Mm. By 1904, Matahari began to rise to prominence as an exotic dancer. She was a contemporary of dancers Isadora Duncan and Ruth Sundini, leaders Ooh, in the early hey. modern dance movement. And around the time of the 20th century, that, you know, early modern dance actually looked to Asia and Egypt for artistic mm -hmm. inspiration. Yes. So Matahari captivated her audiences and was an overnight success from the debut of her act at the Musée Guimet in 1905. She posed as a Javanese princess of priestly Hindu 
Hindu birth, pretending to have been immersed in the art of sacred Indian dance since childhood. Mm. She was photographed numerous times during this period, appearing to be nude or nearly so. Uh, the most celebrated segment of her act was her progressive shedding of clothing until she was wearing just a jeweled breastplate and some ornaments upon her arms and head. Though she was wow. never seen bare chested and she actually wore a body stocking for her performances. Mm. So. Mm-hmm. A lot like Eurovision. Yeah, exactly. Huh. <laughs> huh. <laughs> Weird. So although Matahari's claims about her origins were fictitious, it was very common for entertainers of that time to invent colorful stories about themselves yeah. as part of the show. And her act was so successful because it elevated erotic dance to a more respectable status and then broke new ground in a style of entertainment for which Paris was later to become world famous. Mm. Her style and free-willed attitude made her very popular, as did her eagerness to perform in exotic and revealing clothing. She posed for provocative photos and mingled in wealthy circles. And since many Europeans at the time were unfamiliar with the Dutch East Indies, Matahari was thought of as exotic and it was assumed that her claims were genuine. Uh, Mm. However, as younger dancers took the stage, her bookings actually became more sporadic and she supplemented her income by seducing government and military men, sex becoming a financial practicality for her. I mean, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, exactly. And that's a natural next step. I mean, I would (laughs) have, you know. (laughs) So, you know, but she seemed to like it. You know, yeah, she seemed to enjoy her work. Yes. And you know what? You got to love your work, you know? <laughs> you love your work. You don't work a day in your life. Yeah, you don't work a day in your life. That's yeah. true. So here we go. During World War One, the Netherlands remained neutral. And yes. as a Dutch subject, she was able to cross national borders freely. So to avoid the battlefields, Matahari traveled between France and the Netherlands through Spain and Britain, and her movements inevitably attract attention. During the war, Matahari was involved in what was described as a very intense romantic sexual relationship with Captain Vladimir de Maslov, a 23-year-old Russian pilot serving with the French, whom she called the love of her life. Oh, so wow. Maslov was part of the 50,000-strong Russian expeditionary force sent to the Western Front in the spring of 1916. That summer, he was shot down and badly wounded during a dogfight with the Germans, ending up losing his sight in his left eye, which led Matahari to ask for permission to visit her wounded lover at the hospital where he was staying near the front. As a citizen of a neutral country, she would not normally be allowed near the front, but she was met by agents from the Deuxième Bureau who told her that she would be allowed to see Maslov if she agreed to spy for France. Mm. So the Deuxième Bureau believed that she might be able to obtain information by seducing the Crown Prince Wilhelm, eldest (gasps) son of Kaiser Wilhelm II, for military secrets. So here's the thing. Unaware that the crown prince didn't have anything to do with the running of the army group or anything, anything relating to the German military, the Duzian Bureau also offered Zell one million francs if she could seduce him and provide France with good intelligence about German plans. So Mm. in late 1916, Zell traveled to Madrid, where she met with the German military attaché, Major Arnold Kahl, and asked if he could arrange a meeting with the crown prince. During this period, Zell supposedly offered to share French secrets with Germany in exchange for money. And in January 1917, Major Kahl transmitted radio messages to Berlin describing the helpful activities of a German spy code named H21, whose details just so closely matched Matahari's that it was just blatantly obvious that Agent H21 could only be her. Um, And the Duzian Bureau 
intercepted the messages and from the information they contained, identified her as that agent. So the messages were in a code that German intelligence knew had already been broken by the French, suggesting that the messages were contrived to have Zell arrested by the French. And the chief Mm -hmm. intelligence officer of the German army had grown very annoyed that Matahari had provided him with no real military intelligence, instead selling the Germans mere Parisian gossip about the sex lives of French politicians. So he decided to terminate her employment by exposing her as a German spy to the French. Oh. And in February 1917, Matahari was arrested in her room at the Hotel Elysee Palace in Paris. She was put on trial that July, accused of spying for Germany and consequently causing the deaths of at least 50,000 soldiers by revealing information about the Allies' new weapon, the tank. Although Hmm. the French and British intelligence suspected her of spying for Germany, neither could produce definite evidence against her. Supposedly, secret ink was found in her room, which was incriminating evidence in that period, but she contended it was part of her makeup. Oh, boy. So at her trial, Zell insisted that her sympathies were with the Allies and declared her passionate love of France, her adopted homeland. Eventually, Hmm. she dropped a bombshell confession. A German diplomat had once paid her 20,000 francs to gather intelligence on her frequent trips to Paris, but she swore to investigators she never actually fulfilled the bargain and always remained faithful to France. She told Mm. them she simply viewed the money as compensation for furs and luggage that had once disappeared on a departing train while German border guards hassled her. A courtesan, I admit it, she said. A spy, never. I have always lived for love and pleasure. The military tribunal deliberated for less than 45 minutes before returning a guilty verdict. (gasps) So basically, she kind of got set up. So the the French were like, you know what? You can go see your wounded Russian lover if you agree to go to spy for us on the Germans. And then a German guy was like, oh, the French think you are going to spy for them. You are going to actually tell us stuff instead. And she... Either way, like, never got any real information from or for anybody. It was basically, she basically was a scapegoat. Yeah, exactly. So the Dutch government didn't intervene to any significant degree on behalf of its citizen. Um, She spent months enduring malnourishment and incarceration (gasps) in vermin-infested conditions. No. And Matahari was executed by a firing squad of 12 French soldiers just before dawn on October 15, 1917. According to an eyewitness account by British reporter Henry Wales, she was not bound and refused a blindfold. After being felled by the firing squad, another officer placed the muzzle of his revolver against her left temple and pulled the trigger, just to be sure. Oh, my God. And she was just 41 when she died. Oh, my God. Her body was not claimed by any family members and was accordingly used for medical study. Her head Uh, was embalmed and kept in the Museum of Anatomy in Paris. And in the year 2000, archivists discovered that it had disappeared, possibly as early as 1954, (laughs) according to curator Roger Sabin, during the museum's relocation. And her head remains missing. What? (laughs) Where is the head of Matahari? You know, some rich Asshole Some has it rich in his. Aus- uh, he probably has it under a glass dome, and he's oh like, "Gosh, this is a head of Matahari," and he like drinks cherry and brandy and like smokes a cigar on it. Isn't that so I nuts? 
Oh, that's so gross. So basically, the idea of an exotic dancer who's working as a lethal double agent using her powers of seduction to extract military secrets from many lovers made the story of Matahari an enduring archetype of the femme fatale. And over the years, many historians have come to her defense saying that she was sacrificed because the French needed to find a spy to explain their succession of reverses in the war. And she was the perfect (gasps) scapegoat because her publicly, quote, loose morals made it easier to tar her as an enemy of France. So her sealed trial and related other documents, which is more than like 1200 pages was declassified by the French army in 2017, a hundred years after her execution. And people are able to read those now. Wow. That's terrible. I'm so sorry. So that wasn't even so. Okay. So Rose for the Confederates, she was a spy. She was a spy for the Confederates. That's not great. Um, Matahari like, had a pretty cool life, but she wasn't really a spy. And then she got executed for it. Yeah. Okay. But now we're going to talk about an American spy named Virginia Hall, who did so much during World War II. Like, good guy spy right here. Okay, great. Love it. She's so awesome. So Virginia Hall... She was born in Baltimore, Maryland in 1906 to Edwin and Barbara Hall. She attended Roland Park Country School and then Radcliffe College and Barnard College, where she studied French, Italian, and German. And she also attended George Washington University studying French and economics. She wanted to finish her studies in Europe, so she traveled to the continent and studied in France, Germany, and Austria, finally landing an appointment as a consular service clerk at the American Embassy in Warsaw, Poland in 1931. So this girl, like, Knew what she wanted to do, learned like yeah. 18 languages, traveled to 19 different countries. Like sh- she, yeah, she's living it. She is great. So she's working in Poland. A few months after she transferred to Smyrna, later known as Izmir, Turkey, um, in 1933, <laughs> she was out hunting birds and she tripped and accidentally shot herself in the left <gasps> foot. What? <laughs> yeah. I know this is a weird thing, but it's going to come up later. Okay. So, so she I mean, shot her, among us. She shot. She tripped. She shot herself in her left foot. Yeah. Her leg was amputated below the knee. And oh my god. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. We just right. met this girl. She's very smart. She's working as a counselor. Well. <laughs> She's now in Turkey. She shot herself in the foot. Uh, her leg's amputated below the knee. It's replaced yeah. with a wooden appendage, which she affectionately nicknamed Cuthbert. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I'm back on this. Okay, you're back on. You're back on. (laughs) After after losing her leg, she once again worked as a consular clerk in Venice and in Tallinn, Estonia. So Virginia Hall made several attempts to become a diplomat with the U.S. Foreign Service, but women were rarely hired in this division. In 1937, she was turned down by the Department of State because of an obscure rule against hiring people with disabilities as diplomats. What? (laughs) What the fuck? What? Nope, I'm what? sorry. Your foot is made of wood. You cannot be a diplomat. <laughs> you cannot. You're not. You just don't measure. You're up. not diplomat sorry. material, Virginia. I know you speak 58 languages, and you've been working in this field for 20 years. But yep, Cuthbert, you and you and Cuthbert, not here. Keep moving, lady. <laughs> so she was like, "All right, you know what?" So she resigned from the Department of State in Good. March 1939. 
Right before World War II, in February 1940, Hall became an ambulance driver for the Army of France. Okay, And after France was defeated in June 1940, she made her way to Spain, where, by chance, she met a British intelligence officer named George Bellows. And Bellows was impressed with her and gave her the telephone number of a friend who might be able to help her find employment in England. And that friend was Nicholas Boddington, who worked for the newly created Special Operations Executive, the SOE. So Hall joined the SOE in April 1941, and after training, arrived in Vichy, France, which was unoccupied by Germany at that time and nominally independent. Um, And she'd arrived there in August. She was the second female agent to be sent to France by the SOE's France section and the first to remain there for a lengthy period of time. Her cover was as a reporter for the New York Post, which gave her license to interview people, gather information, and file stories filled with details that were useful to military planners. Sure. And she based herself in Lyon. So she turned away from her previous chic Parisian wardrobe and became inconspicuous and often changed her appearance through makeup and disguise. Ooh. So that's exciting. So Hall was a pioneer as a World War I secret agent and had to learn on her own how to arrange contacts, recommend who to bribe, where to hide, reassure the jagged nerves of other agents on the run, and supervise the distribution of wireless sets. So the network or circuit of SOE agents she founded was named Heckler. And among her recruits was gynecologist Jean Roussant and Germaine Guerin, the owner of a prominent brothel in Lyon. So Guerin made several safe houses available to Hall and passed along tidbits of information that she and female employees heard from German officers visiting the brothel. (gasps) Right? This is so so exciting. (laughs) So... Downed airmen who found their way to Lyon were told to go to the American consulate and say that they were a friend of Olivier. Olivier was Hall. Mm. And she, with the help of the brothel owner, Garen, and other friends, hid Fenn and helped dozens of airmen escape France to neutral Spain and back to England. So the Germans had some idea that there was that there was a female behind all this. Like they were like, Mm. oh, yeah, you know, we we just can't we just can't figure out who it is. But we know her as the limping lady. So (gasps) they put the limping late Germany put the limping lady on their most wanted list during World War Two. World War Two. Everything is. Blowing up, they put the yeah. limping lady on their most wanted list. Oh my God. <laughs> so in October 1941, Virginia Hall sensed danger. She declined to attend a meeting of SOE agents in Marseille, which the French police raided and captured a dozen agents. After that debacle, Hall was one of the few SOE agents still at large in France and the only one with the means of transmitting information to London. George Whittinghill, an American diplomat in Lyon, allowed her to smuggle reports and letters to London in his diplomatic pouch. So sidebar real quick, because this Mm. is something that I feel has come up on TV shows and I'm like, oh, yeah, diplomatic pouch. And, you know, like I pretend (laughs) like I know what that means. I know I was like, I know the police can't touch it. Like, I think that that was like all I knew about it. Yeah. So a diplomatic pouch or diplomatic bag is any properly identified and sealed package, pouch, envelope, bag or other container that's used to transport official correspondence, documents or other articles intended for official use. So this is only between embassies, consular posts, and the foreign office of any government, the headquarters or any other office of a public international organization and its regional offices in the U.S. or in a foreign country, or the foreign office of any country with full membership in a public international organization and its mission to that. So those are the only like 
times that somebody can actually use a diplomatic pouch. Like you can't oh, okay. like just hide your weed in a diplomatic pouch. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> like, like the police can still be like, no, nah, man, like that's, you know, that's not official yeah, yeah. business between. Exactly. Two, between different countries and consulates. Yes. And, yeah. But since, so George Weddinghill is the American diplomat in Lyon. So he was allowed to carry his diplomatic pouch and she was able to smuggle letters out to London through him. Interesting. So, so, you know, the French police had come in, they raided this, you know, meeting, they captured a bunch of agents and Hall learned that the 12 agents who were arrested were incarcerated at the Mozak prison near Bergerac. Wireless operator Georges Begu smuggled out letters to Hall from the prison and she recruited the wife of the prisoner Jean-Pierre Bloch named Gabby Bloch as an ally to plan an escape. So <gasps> Gabby Bloch visited the prison frequently to bring food and other items to her husband, including tins of sardines hmm. well it just so happened that in the tins of sardines were tools that enabled <gasps> Begay to make a key to the door to the barracks where the prisoners were kept <laughs> oh my god that's amazing so <laughs> i love this so virginia <laughs> hall she was too well known to visit the prison but she assembled sure. safe houses vehicles and helpers and on july 15 1942 the prisoners escaped and after hiding in the woods an intense manhunt took place, but all of them met up with Hall and they were able to make it to safety. Oh my gosh. So, and from there, they were all smuggled to Spain and back to England. Yay. Yay. So the Germans were furious about the escape from the Mozak prison and the laxity of, of the were. French police in allowing the escape. So the Gestapo flooded Vichy, France with 500 agents, and the Abwehr also stepped up operations to infiltrate and destroy the fledgling French resistance and the SOE networks. And oh the Germans God. focused on Lyon, the center of the resistance. Hall had counted on contacts she had with the French police to protect her, but under pressure from the Germans, her mm. police contacts were no longer reliable. Oh, no. So on November 7th, 1942, the American consulate in Lyon told Hall that an Allied invasion of North Africa was imminent. And in response to the invasion on November 8th, the Germans moved to occupy Vichy, France. Mm. Hall anticipated correctly that the suppression of the Gestapo and the Abwehr would become even more severe, and she fled Lyon without telling anybody, including her mm. closest contacts. Uh oh. Ready? Virginia Hall escaped by train from Lyon to Perpignan, then with a guide, walked over the Pyrenees to Spain, covering 50 what? miles over two days in considerable discomfort. <laughs> After, yeah, uh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> After arriving in Spain, she was arrested by the Spanish authorities for illegally crossing the border, but the American embassy eventually secured her release. And she worked for the SOE for a time in Madrid, then returned to London in July 1943, where she was quietly made an honorary member of the Order of the British Empire. Oh. Like, my quietly. God, shut up. So it's July 1943. Great. You know, she's like, yeah, I just did a bunch of cool shit. Yeah, I like escaped. Yeah, I walked over some mountains. She's like, no big I'm kind of bored. On her return to London, the SOE leaders declined to send her back to France as an agent despite her requests. She was compromised, they said, too much at risk. However, mm. she took a wireless course and was contacted by the American Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, <gasps> about a job. And she was hired by the Special Operations Branch at a low rank and pay of a second lieutenant. And in March 1944, returned to France, arriving by motor gunboat at Begonfray, east of Roscoff in Brittany. The OSS. She's like, she's like, yep. one more job. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm out. And then I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. I gotta get, I gotta get back. She loves France. She loves oh, getting yeah. into this. I can't, I cannot even imagine like 
Oh, uh, my God. Th- how the stress. <laughs> right. The She's back, baby. Too much. Oh, man, I love her. So the OSS provided her with a forged French ID card in the name of Marcel Montagna. And her code name was Diane. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. The- not like... Not like the leopard or (laughs) just just Diane. Diane. All right. Yeah. So the objective of the OSS teams was to arm and train the resistance groups so they could support the Allied invasion of Normandy, which was going to take place on June 6, 1944. Hall was disguised as an older woman with gray hair. Her teeth. Oh, yeah, this one. Her teeth were actually filed down. What? So to like to resemble like a peasant. Yeah. Right? I guess, just yeah, I flipper. forgot about that part. Just That's get a bad. flipper. Uh, so anyway, she was disguised. She disguised her limp with the shuffle of an old woman, she said. And landing with her was Henri Lasso, who was 62 years old. And he was the organizer and leader of the new Saint Network. Um, and it was too radical a thought that a woman could lead an SOE or OSS network of agents. So she, so Virginia was essentially Lasso's wireless operator, and they were the fourth and fifth OSS agents to arrive in France. Uh, Lasso carried with him one million francs, which was equivalent <laughs> to 5,000 British pounds. Uh, Hall had about a half a million francs with her. Hall quickly separated herself from Lasso, who should be characterized as too talkative and a security risk, instructing her contacts not to tell him where she was. Aware that her accent would reveal that she was not French, she hired a French woman named Madame Rabu to accompany and speak for her. So from March to July 1944, Hall roamed around France south of Paris, posing sometimes as an elderly milkmaid, on one occasion selling cheese she had made to a group of German soldiers. She found and organized drop zones, established several safe houses, and made and renewed contacts in the resistance. She organized and supplied with arms several resistance groups of 100 men each in the Cher and Cosne. She unsuccessfully attempted to organize a jailbreak to gain freedom for three men whom she called her nephews that were captives of the Germans in Paris. Her resistance groups undertook many successful small-scale attacks on infrastructure and German soldiers. Hall and several of the British and American military officers working for her left the Haute-Loire and arrived in Paris on September 22nd. And later, she and her OSS agent journeyed to Austria to foment anti-Nazi resistance. With the collapse of the Nazis, Hall and Joliot returned to Paris in April 1945. She wrote reports and identified people who had helped her and were deserving of commendations and then resigned from the OSS. You know what? She's not done. She joined the CIA in 1947. Oh <laughs> no, stop it. Yeah. <laughs> so what? Hall was one of the first women hired by the new agency, the Central Intelligence Agency. Oh, my God. And her deskbound job as an intelligence analyst was to gather information about Soviet penetration of European countries. Um, in 1951, she worked alongside one of her previous... Um, uh, guys in France, Julio, as members of the Special Activities Division supporting undercover activities to prevent the spread of communism in Europe. Mm. She finally retired in 1966 at the mandatory okay. retirement age of age 60. <laughs> Oh, my God. For Virginia Hall's efforts in France, General William Joseph Donovan personally awarded her a Distinguished Service Cross in September 1945 in recognition of her efforts in France, the only one awarded to a civilian woman during World War II. She was made an honorary member of the Order of the British Empire and awarded a Croix de Guerre by France. 
Um, so Hall's refusal to talk and write about her World War II experiences resulted in her slipping into obscurity during her lifetime. But yeah. her death triggered a new curiosity, which persisted into the 21st century. Uh, the French and British ambassadors in Washington honored her in 2006 on the 100th anniversary of her birth. And in 2016, a CIA field agent training facility was named the Virginia Hall Expeditionary Center. Um, why isn't there like an HBO series about this oh woman's my God, life? Right? Or like a Hulu thing? Like this needs this is screaming for like a limited series yeah. about this woman. She's so cool. And I think um something I read said that like when you know, when she crossed the Pyrenees marching like fifty miles a day and like with her terrible leg, somebody Somebody yeah. said something like, oh, who do you have with you? Or who is who's there? And she said something like Virginia and Cuthbert. And people are like looking for like <laughs> another guy. Like the spy and it's actually, named Cuthbert. Yeah, like, it's actually he yours? her wooden leg. She's, <laughs> it's she's such amazing. a cool story. Yeah. Oh, so my this gosh. Is like, so this is an awesome spy story. She did so this many is, cool an things. Awesome spy story. And I, I wish I could talk more about lady spies all the time yeah it's so much fun that's really cool so yeah that was that was spy versus spy versus spy i love that i virginia hall is amazing she's I so would, great i would watch a. I would read a book i would watch a tv show i would do both <laughs> i'm shocked hollywood get on this are we this i mean is, we can write a spec script we got we can write a, we got a couple days you know who could help us neil f <laughs> He could find us. He could help us write a treatment. Also, also Lynn Y in uh, L.A. She she's she listens. Oh yeah, she writes scripts. Yeah, Lynn, yeah, get on this. Get on, yeah. Help help us write a treatment. <laughs> we'll we'll give you top billing. <laughs> I love this. So to continue the theme for the night, our quiz okay. is called Decoder Ring. This is a quiz all about spy terms. So I will give you two definitions. One is the specific definition of the espionage terminology, and the other is another angle that you can get that answer from. Okay. All right. Here we go. Question one. The purported occupation or purpose of an agent or a recording or performance of a song made famous by another artist. Question two. An agent of one organization sent to penetrate a specific intelligence agency by gaining employment. Or friend of Rat, Toad, and Badger from that 1908 book by Kenneth Graham. Question three. When an operation, asset, or agent is uncovered and cannot remain secret. Or how you and a partner settled a dispute by mutual concession. Like... Okay, on our road trip, we can listen to Hollywood Handbook before misinformation if we stop at Sheets first. Question four. A secret location where materials can be left for another party to retrieve. Or two words in the title of a 1999 mockumentary starring Kirsten Dunst and Kirstie Alley in Mount Rose, Minnesota's annual beauty pageant. Question five. The case officer directly responsible for an agent in an operation. Or the person who paraded Wasabi the Pekingese at the Westminster Kennel Club dog show. Question six. Someone or something unknown to enemy intelligence. Or something free from dirt, marks, or stains. Question seven. A male agent employed to seduce people for intelligence purposes. Or 
Edgar's favorite Corvid. Question eight. The world's most famous spy plane developed by the U.S. specifically for intelligence collection in the thin atmosphere 55,000 feet above the Soviet Union or the group who released How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb in 2004. Question nine. An agent living as an ordinary citizen in a foreign country who acts only when a situation develops or a yo-yo trick during which a person throws down the yo-yo and while the string is fully extended, the yo-yo stays in place and spins. Or finally, question 10. A statement issued by an intelligence agency to other agencies announcing that someone must officially be disavowed. Or a seven-season-long USA series starring Jeffrey Donovan as Michael Weston. I'll give you some time to think about it and then be back with your answers. I awake to find no peace of mind. I said, how do you live as a fugitive down here? Where I cannot see so clear I said what do I know Show me the right way to go And the spies came out of the water But you're feeling so bad Cause you know And the spies hide out in every corner Touch them now I'm feeling very good about this, Julia, except for one question. Uh-huh. So when you say it again, I, I think it'll I'll pop. Get it. It'll pop right it'll in pop there. It'll pop right in. All right. It'll pop right in. All right. All right Decoder ring, our quiz about spy terms. You get two definitions. One's the specific definition of the espionage terminology, and the other is another way to get to that answer. All right. Question one. The purported occupation or purpose of an agent or a recording or performance of a song made famous by another artist. That's a cover. Absolutely. It's a cover. Question two, an agent of one organization sent to penetrate a specific intelligence agency by gaining employment or friend of rat, toad, and badger in that 1908 book by Kenneth Graham. That's a mole. It is a mole. And that book is The Wind in the Willows. Question three, when an operation, asset, or agent is uncovered and cannot remain secret or how you and a partner settled a dispute by mutual concession. Like, okay, on our road trip, we can listen to Hollywood Handbook before misinformation if we stop at Sheets first. That's a compromise. <laughs> yes, yes. An agent is compromised when they are uncovered yep. and cannot remain secret. Question four. A secret location where materials can be left for another party to retrieve. Or two words in the title of the 1999 mockumentary starring Kirsten Dunst and Kirstie Alley in the Mount Rose, Minnesota's annual beauty pageant. Uh, that's a dead drop, and I love Drop Dead Gorgeous. It's that I haven't seen that in so years. Good. It's, it's so, so good. It's so funny. It's so funny. So good. <laughs> love it. All right, question five. The case officer directly responsible for an agent in an operation. Or the person who paraded Wasabi the Pekingese at the Westminster Kennel Club dog show. 
That's a handler. It is a handler. Exactly. Question six. Someone or something unknown to enemy intelligence or something free from dirt, marks, and stains? Um, uh, This is the one that I was like, I didn't know about. Uh, clean? Yes, exactly. Oh, yes. 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 They're clean if they're Woo-hoo. unknown to enemy intelligence. All right. Number seven. A male agent employed to seduce people for intelligence purposes. Or Edgar's favorite Corvid, uh, a raven. That is a raven. Yes. And you know what the female? You know what the female agent is? A dove, a sparrow. That was the oh, Jennifer Jennifer Lawrence movie, Red Sparrow. Oh, yeah, right, 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 yeah. right, right, right. Mm. All right. Question eight: The world's most famous spy plane, developed by the U.S. specifically for intelligence collection in the thin atmosphere, fifty-five thousand feet above the Soviet Union. Or the group who released How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb in 2004? Uh, that's U2. Yes, it was U2. Exactly. All right, question nine. An agent living as an ordinary citizen in a foreign country who acts only when a situation develops. Or a yo-yo trick during which a person throws down the yo-yo and while the string is fully extended, the yo-yo stays in place and spins. That's a sleeper. It is a sleeper. Yes. <laughs> How do I sign up to do that? I know, right? I want to be a sleeper agent. Like you just got to, someone has to come up to me in a suit and I'll be like, who are you? And then they're like, eggplant. And I'm like, <gasps> click, 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 click. <laughs> Like the chip inside my brain is like, weep, weep, weep. And then suddenly like both of my hands are weapons. How did this get here? <laughs> well, I meant more like, like I suddenly remember all my Kung Fu and I can kill a man with ba- my bare hands and my thighs. <laughs> That's my particular. Maybe we need to delete this part of angle. the podcast because we don't want we don't want anybody no, we don't to want know TM, about TM, this. TM, 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 yeah. <laughs> Only I get to kill people with my arm, with my hands, and my thighs. and your thighs That's it. simultaneously. All right, and finally, question ten: A statement issued by an intelligence agency to other agencies announcing that someone must be officially disavowed. Or a seven-season-long USA series starring Jeffrey Donovan as Michael Weston. Uh, that's burn notice. And Lauren, welcome to the Perfect Quiz Club. Hundred percent, hundred percent, hundred percent. Gold star. TM. Confetti, 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 confetti. Great job, Lauren. Yes, only my third in the four years we've been doing this Good. You know what? That's almost one a year, and I'm I'm okay with that. I'm That's okay fine. with that. Yeah. <laughs> like whatever, man. Yeah. No one bats a hundred, right? <laughs> no. Uh, not even Babe Ruth bat a hundred, <laughs> right? I don't know. We haven't done it. I've we don't know a what very that means. It's been a long it's time since we talked baseball. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a very long time. That's true. That's true. Um, thanks, Julia. That yeah. was a great quiz and a, such a good topic. I learned so much. That was awesome. Yeah, Matahari is. Just like a such a cool story too. Yeah. And also so sad yeah. too. I didn't realize like she was like double crossed by mm-hmm. so many people. Mm-hmm. Ugh, terrible. Um, yeah, great topic. Thank you everybody for listening. Oh, um, yeah. And we totally forgot to mention this like with our with our first two episodes of the season, but we have a new theme song you probably noticed. Oh yeah. <laughs> and that came to us by John Spees, who was amazing. And oh, you definitely have to listen job. to the uh, to the shows on the Blast from the Past Network. Um John and his brother Adam are are just terrific guys. 
John did a wonderful job with our theme song. We loved it. Like it was the first thing he sent us and we were like, I love this like bossa nova like funkiness. Yeah. I felt like um, we're in like a 90s like sitcom. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Boop, boop, boop. Yeah. Loved it. And also um, your episode with them on uh, your favorite Fleetwood Mac, Fleetwood Mac a- yeah. uh, songs was very good. Thank you. Uh, so definitely if you haven't checked that out, it's Blast from the Past. Uh, our, Blast, Blast from, from our, our Past, past Sorry. podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so check it out. Julia is on the episode and uh, it was great. Yeah. I mean, now both of us have been on Blast from yeah. our past. Very cool. So maybe we'll have to get on together and we can <gasps> talk about, I don't know, something. We have something in common. We have something. I'm sure we have some things in common. <laughs> <laughs> we talk a lot about what we don't have in common, but maybe we should start talking about things we do have in common, Julia. And we should do it on someone else's podcast. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will catch you next time. Ciao. Bye.